This morning we are going to look at the book of Job in chapter 32 through 37. I'm not going to go verse by verse in all five of those chapters, or six, whatever the case may be. But I am going to um, bring to your attention some of the major points we can learn from those chapters. Uh, kind of piggybacking off of uh, this series and, and what Brother Chris had brought to us last week. Um, what I want to focus on today is, is this universal subject of suffering. That's really what Job is all about, isn't it? It's, a, it's a, a book that's sometimes hard to understand, but its themes are really universal. We all have experiences with suffering. We all have experiences with confusing times, times we don't understand. Okay, so we're going to dig into this book, these chapters. Uh, many different explanations have been put forth by why so-called good people uh, suffer, why bad things, quote, happen to good people. Um, some enemies of Christianity and those who are skeptical would call it the problem of evil. If God is all good and God is all powerful, then why does he allow evil to exist? There seems to be no reason for it. However, Job tells us, God tells us in Job, that there is actually many reasons for it. And as our culture grows more and more secular, Job really can speak to us and speak through us because people have less and less reason to believe the answers that we find in the book of Job. And so the hope that we can offer them, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and who he is and what he did, the gospel we're going to see again in this crazy culture is truly the answer for our day and time. So last week, Chris uh, touched on some things. I want to I touch on the three main points that he made as we go into jo uh, Job chapter 32. We learned last week uh, through Brother Chris that we should not charge God with wrongdoing. That was one of Job's mistakes with charging God with wrongdoing. Also, we learned that we should not believe our circumstances. You may have heard the phrase, don't believe everything you hear. Well, the Bible tells us don't believe everything you think either. Don't believe everything that happens to you. We can believe, however, God's word always. Whatever God says is by nature true is by nature true. So we can believe what God has said. When Job finally receives his resolution from all the turmoil, it is when God actually opens his mouth and speaks right after this passage about Elihu. And so let's talk about so far what we've learned in Job. The summary of what God wants to teach us about suffering so far. We know first of all that suffering, as well as good times, as well as his blessing, Suffering falls under the sovereignty of God just as everything else in life does, okay? And I think uh, one of the best verses I've ever heard explained uh, about this subject is in Acts chapter 4. Let me read a little bit of what the disciples were saying and praying in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. It says this, After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your, our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the most unjust, ungodly thing that ever happened in all of history where a perfect man received a guilty sentence for the guilt of all the world, God still was in charge of that evil, evil act. If God is in charge of that evil thing, who's to say that God is not in charge of everything that could possibly happen and does happen? And that's the point of Job, is that suffering does fall under the sovereignty of God. Another thing we learned so far is that Job actually is righteous. Job actually is a righteous man. We learned that from chapter 1 and chapter 2. So that we can say there is actually a thing as innocent suffering. And yes, we know the other verses about this that seem to balance it out. We know that there is none righteous, no, not one. Job would say that he was not perfect, and that's why we could say he was a righteous man, because he knew he was not perfect. We know he sacrificed constantly just in case his children had sinned or if he missed something. He was a righteous man. We know that Jesus said in Luke 13, yes, unless you also repent, you will also perish, dealing with the problem of evil. But some suffering, as we see in Job, truly is not related to any particular sin. Job is suffering as a test from God, not because he did something wrong. So there's a category for innocent suffering. Otherwise, the book of Job doesn't make any sense. We're not going to find in the book of Job karma, which, by the way, is an unbiblical concept. If you did not know that, karma is not a biblical concept. Karma means you get what you deserve. Christianity is Christ got what we deserve. Big difference. Big difference. So the key to the whole book, was Job righteous? Yes, he was. He was truly righteous. Number three, God doesn't blame us for honest venting or complaining. That's what Job did. He, he raised questions. He did not deny God, but he did complain and ask questions and wondered why it was happening. God doesn't blame him for that. Because without Job's questions, we would have not had any of God's responses either. And then finally, Job is having such a hard time. He's having such a difficulty, but he's not abandoned God. But his struggle is because he knows that God is just and God is merciful and God is good just because God said so. That's where the struggle lies. It looks in his circumstances different than what God has said about himself. So it's no sin, there seems to be no sense to it as Job considers the circumstances. Now what about Job's friends? Did they help, did they help the situation or did they hinder it? Job's friends, they, they did what they thought they were doing right. They thought they were helping him. As it turns out, they ended up just getting it wrong. So they had a very tight theology with no loose ends. In other words, you do this, no one's, no one's good, therefore God punishes evil, uh, and it all washes out in the end. It's like an algebra equation. You plug in this, you get that every time. That was their theology, very tight. A very tight sense of you get this because you did that to God. So technically they were correct mostly. Technically they might have been correct most of the time. I liken these three friends as like first year seminary students. Would you agree? Oh, we've got it all figured out and we're just going to confirm what we know here in seminary. They got it all figured out. No, that's not the case. They might have thought they had it figured out, but they didn't help Job whatsoever. 
They assume that suffering is only a punishment of sin. That suffering is only punishment. There's no category for innocent suffering in the minds of the three friends. You see also that they're very condescending. They had no compassion. They talked down to Job. They just assumed Job was guilty because he was suffering. No compassion. However, Job holds fast, doesn't he? Job is listening to these sorry friends of his, and he's holding fast, getting this miserable counsel, but he's not going to keep... He's going to keep his faith in God and not listen to what they're saying. And then finally, 32.1, we have an impasse. We have a, a, a section here where his friends are done talking. They've said everything they want to say. There's nothing else to say. And then here comes one more fallen counselor, this, this boy named Elihu. And that's where we are in our text this morning in Job chapter 32. Elihu. Who is Elihu? Uh, not mentioned at all in the introduction to Job. Elihu is not mentioned at all in the, in the uh, conclusion of Job. God does not mention Elihu at all when God speaks after this section. Elihu is not lifted up as an example to follow, nor is Elihu condemned like the three other friends. He just kind of has a time to speak, and then he's done. Okay, interesting here. Uh, he rebukes Job, and he rebukes his three friends. Oddly enough, however, Elihu is the youngest of them all. That's why it's a little difficult to understand and interpret. I asked, I asked Brother Chris if I could do the, the, the chapters on Elihu, and he basically said, are you sure? It's kind of a challenge. I say, challenge accepted. Let's do this. Let's do this. So Elihu, chapter in Job chapter 32, let's look at verse 1 through 6. Job 32, 1 through 6. So these three men quit answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzite from the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. He was also angry at Job's three friends because they had failed to refute him and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were all older than he. But when he saw that the three men could not answer Job, he became angry. So Elihu, son of Barachel the Buzite, replied, I am young in years while you are old. Therefore I was timid and afraid to tell you what I know. And then he continues through a long series of apologies and explanations that even though he's young, he has a lot to say. And he, he can't hold it in any longer. And he's just got to speak. He's just got to get it out. In verse 2, it says that he wants to speak for God. So he's anxious to, to do God a good big favor and say what finally needs to be said, right? So he, you can tell he's very arrogant, very pompous. You know, this, this young kid thinks he knows what needs to be said and correct all the rest. So that sets the stage for what we're looking at in these chapters. Now, Job chapter 33 and verse 12. He finally gets around to telling Job what's wrong with Job and what's wrong with the three friends. And in 12 to 14, he says this. But I tell you, you're wrong in this matter, since God is greater than man. Why do you take him to court for not answering anything a person asks? For God speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it. So here he's siding with the three friends by saying, Job, you're not right here. 
you're speaking against what God has said. You're, you're not right in it. Okay? Look at uh, chapter 33 and now verse 23. 23. This is where it gets really interesting. This is where I think the most interesting part of these chapters is found. So look at what this says. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. So Elihu has a very tight theology too. You get this, you do this to God, and he's going to do this to you. Tit for tat. You, get, you give this, you get that. And then Elihu starts to wax eloquently about, now what if there was some angel out there, what if there was some angel in God's heaven that could somehow stand between the throne of God and the problems of mankind and actually offer to God a solution for what man's going through such that somehow mankind would not get exactly what they deserve from God, but that they get less than they deserve from God. Because after all, you sin against God, He's going to give you exactly what you deserve. So he's going on and on about this mediator. What if there was a mediator? What if there was a mediator? We shall return to that at the end. Chapter 34. Again, he goes back to the subject that God could not do wrong. And that is, of course, technically true. God cannot do wrong. He is holy. He is righteous. And so 34 verse 10 says this. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. It is impossible for God to do wrong and for the Almighty to act unjustly. For He re repays a person according to His deeds and gives him what his conduct deserves. Indeed, it is true that God does not act wickedly and the Almighty does not pervert justice. So he's only digging down deeper into Job's dilemma. Yes, God gives us what we deserve. We sin against Him. We get this punishment. But Job knows he's innocent. So, Elihu says, Job, either you're right or God is right. Which one do you think it is? You know? Real helpful character. Real, real helpful friend this Elihu is. And he obviously... He obviously is assuming that Job is wrong. In verse 35 of the same chapter, 34, he says this, uh, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. If only Job were tested to the limit. Oh man, wouldn't you want to slap him at that point? If only Job were tested to the limit, because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin, he scornfully claps in our presence while multiplying his words against God. So Job is wrong, he's saying. Job, you're going down the wrong path, and let me tell you how wrong you are. And the worse, he's, the worse it gets, the more he speaks. 
And that's the problem of Job. Elihu's telling him like it is, and Job is just getting worse and worse and worse. A couple more verses out of these chapters. Chapter 36, and at verse 17 and 18. 36, 17, and 18. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Once again, let me reiterate that technically Elihu is telling truth. The problem seems to be in the way he's going about it. He's telling Job things that God has said about himself before, that God is utterly holy, that God cannot look upon the wicked, that God will by no means clear the guilty, and that God must punish every sin. That's why they had such an incredible uh, centuries and centuries and centuries of the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was a living, breathing, and then a dead and disgusting picture of what God thinks of sin. How disgusting and how messy sin is to God. And and sin demands a death be, be performed. They knew how God hated sin. They'd been reminded of it for thousands and thousands of years. So here they are, knowing that God is holy. And He's technically telling them truth. God is judging you for doing wrong because God can't do wrong. You know, is God getting your attention now, Job? It seems to be what Elihu is saying. And then Elihu does something kind of surprising. Starting in verse 26, all the way to the end of his speech, he starts glorifying God rightly for all the things that God has done and all the things that God is. So just 26, for example. Yes, God is exalted beyond our knowledge. The number of His years cannot be counted. He says things like, He makes water drops evaporate to distill the rain into His midst. He describes nature and weather and all the ways that God's green earth just points and gives praise back to God. This long discourse of God's greatness. It's like He gets caught up in praising God for all the ways that God is right in contrast to all the ways that Job is wrong. And now look at the last two verses, 23, uh, chapter 37 rather, chapter 37, verse 23 and 24. This is the long litany of praising God that Elihu is doing in the presence of Job and the three friends. He says, the Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness He will not violate. Therefore men fear Him. He, meaning God, He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. So he's saying here rightly that God can't do wrong. God is worthy of praise. God is holy. God is righteous. God is awesome. Therefore, people should fear Him. And the ones that are in the right are the ones who do fear Him. And then he says at the last verse, how foolish to not fear God. God does not regard those who do not acknowledge Him. Again, what's so hard about this is the ring of truth. He's praising God like David and the psalmist. He's saying all these wonderful things that are true about God, praiseworthy about God. As with most of what Elihu said here, it's true. It's true. We need to fear God. And when we don't fear God, or when people who do not belong to Christ don't fear God, God does not regard them. 
When we act in conceit and pride, God is opposed to those kind of things. Again, all basically true statements. All of these things jive with the other biblical teachings and all the biblical authors. Okay? Yet the thing about Elihu that we must not imitate is that he's got arrogance, he's pretentious, and his tone is not being helpful. It's not helpful to Job. It's not getting Job into a better place. Thankfully, thanks be to God, we're going to find that happen after God closes the the speech here and, and ends the book of Job with what God has to say. What a reminder to us that when we are trying to help other people, using Elihu as sort of a negative example, when we're trying to help other people, we have to be really careful what we do say, what we don't say, but also how we present ourselves and how we are in their presence. You might have heard this phrase, don't just what? Sit there, do something. You ever heard that? Kids, have you ever heard your parents tell you this? Well, don't just sit there, do something. Well, let me suggest this. If you have a friend that's in the depth of despair who really needs comfort, perhaps what we need to do is this. Don't just do something. Sit there. Sit there. I've had to learn this as a Navy chaplain. Sometimes it doesn't matter what I say. Sometimes it's best if I actually say nothing. People just want to go be with chaps. And you know what? It it, it always seems to help. It always seems to help. Let me encourage you to do that sometimes. This is one of the most countercultural, difficult things to do in our instant, quick-moving world today is just to be with a person and not say anything. That's hard to do. We want to give advice. We want to, get, we want to get them fixed and get them out of there. But why not just sit there and be with them? People, we, 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 we sometimes don't give great advice, do we, right? We don't give good advice when it comes to helping people or, or really seeing a situation for what it is, okay? We see that here so far, up to this chapter in the book of Job. We've had what happened to Job according to God and uh, the throne room of heaven, the encounter with Satan, etc. And then we've got four men's interpretation of what happened and what needs to happen and what Job needs to do. Have you ever had a circumstance that was so utterly confusing that just completely you had no idea what to even think about it? Even conflicting stories, conflicting advice, people that you trust that are giving you conflicting things to do about it and you didn't know who to believe but then finally sometime somehow you got the real story and then it's like oh now I know what to do or now I see why it happened this way well folks that's what's gonna happen Lord willing beginning next week when God speaks in chapter 38 when God opens his mouth and closes the door on all of these human opinions and says what Job needs to hear. What Job needs to hear. We finally get the glorious, precious words of God. That's next week. You be back to hear what God has to say about Job and his circumstance. We learned about three things here in this, in this set of chapters with Elihu and his ways and his words. First of all, we see in these chapters that Job shows us that yes, it is indeed possible for a faithful believer in God 
to love God, to hunger after God, to thirst for righteousness, to refuse to compromise the truth, and yet still not receive immediate rewards. We often forget this, don't we? We think if we're good, then God will immediately give us the reward that we think we deserve. Let me make it real clear. Let me make it real simple. What do we deserve from God? Let me make it clear. Quick. Eternal condemnation. That's what we deserve from God. Anything better than that is a gift. Whenever He gives it and if ever He gives it. Okay? It's still true. We can love God, serve Him, not receive immediate rewards. The world, and even Satan, you could say, would assume that people would want to pursue God only for material comfort. To, to get what they want, you know? Only by personal interest in the here and now. And sadly, many Christians have portrayed that. That what they're doing is for the here and now. For what they can get out of it. But for the, for the true believer, that's not the heart of why we do what we do. We serve God because we want to serve God. We love God because He deserves love. Not because what we get out of it. Okay? I want to go to Romans 1 quickly as I, as I show you a little something that that is quite, quite astounding, actually. Do we serve God so we get what we want? Do we serve God to get stuff? Or do we serve God for other reasons? Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And uh, beginning in verse 18. 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now look at verse 21, what happened. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So people did this, and God gives them a retribution. Moving on. Next verse is 24. Therefore, based upon their desire of sin, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then again this phrase, for this reason, God gave them up, gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Moving along. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God what? Gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, three times in Romans 1... People did something and God, quote, gave them up or gave them over. And in every case, here's the key, God gave them up to something. God gave them over to something that they wanted. Did you hear that? He gave them over to something that they desired. So let me, let me share with you some, this brief teaching that this truth has changed the way I look at everything. 
If God's giving you exactly what you want all the time, that could very well be the punishment of God upon your life. That could very well be the punishment of God upon your life. I mean, if, if a parent gives us everything that we want, is that a parent? Is that a good parent? No, there's also discipline. There's withholding things. There's giving us things that are unpleasant in order to make us better. So Romans 1 teaches that one act of God's wrath is actually giving people exactly what they are searching for and what they want. With that in mind, why do we serve God? Why do we serve God? Because He is worthy. Often punishment looks like people getting what they want. You can think about that in all kinds of ways. You can think about it in terms of our culture today. Who's getting what they want more and more and more? You see it? You see it now? God is giving people over to what they desire. Oswald Chambers said this, Sometimes it looks like God is missing the mark because we're too short-sighted to see what He is aiming for. In your life, is God giving you what you want or is God giving you what He wants for you? That's very important. Are you okay with receiving what God has for you even if it means not getting what you would desire at the moment? Secondly, not only possible for a true believer to love God without immediate rewards, but secondly, when you know God, when you know God's ways, when you know God's character, and life doesn't make sense at all, where do you turn to? Who do you turn to? I mean, do you turn to this God that you thought you knew? You turn to this God that you thought you knew how He was doing things? Are you supposed to turn to Him? Well, the answer is yes. That's exactly who you turn to. If God did not know more than you, He would not be God. Amen? God knows so much more of what we need than we do. Do we turn to Him? Absolutely. Do we need God? <laughs> yes, we do. Acts 17 shows us how much we need God and not vice versa. This is the, the sermon on Mars Hill talking about God. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need us. We need Him. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Yes, we need God. Even if God doesn't make sense to us, the only solution to our dilemma is to still run straight to God with all of our heart as fast as we can. Because where else are you going to find the solution? God's got you. God is all-powerful. Again, He's sovereign over the suffering. Where else are you going to go? God wants us to go to Him. We need God. So Elihu, unlike the other guys, seems to reor reorient the entire debate. In this sense, he's acting and talking pretty wisely. He reorients the whole thing because the, the three friends wanted, the, wanted Job to focus on Job, while Elihu, at least at the end of his speech, Elihu's not wanting Job to focus on Job, but to focus on God where the focus needs to be. Did you see that? He's trying to call Job into praising God with him to who God is. So what is the center of our thoughts? What is our gaze? Not just Sunday morning, not just right now, 
throughout the week, Monday morning, what is our focus? What is our thoughts? What does your mind center on? A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about a person is what that person thinks of God. That is the most important thing about you in time and in general. How do you interpret all these events that are happening lately? There's a lot of events happening lately that even I thought I wouldn't see in my lifetime. How do you interpret this? Do you interpret it, do you interpret it in light of your future career? Or maybe the country that your children are going to inherit? Or do you rightly interpret all these events in light of the kingdom of God and what God is up to? What God is up to? Do you have a man-centered view of the world or a God-centered view of the world? Remember, God is in charge of all these things. God is in charge of all these things. And finally, and I end with this, this thing that Elihu brought up, what about, what if we had a mediator? (laughs) With all the things that God is, He is completely holy, He is completely separate category, completely removed from sinful man and untouchable. You can't even look at God without dying. It would be like trying to touch the surface of the sun And here we are down here just doing our own thing and sinning all the time. There's no hope. If only we had a mediator between a sinful person and a holy, perfect, blazing, white-hot, holy God, maybe we could get somewhere. Well, does the Bible say anything about that mediator? Absolutely it does. And I'd be remiss to end or to focus on anything but this. 1 Timothy Chapter 2 tells us this, For there is one God, and praise God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that God Himself found the solution, came up with the solution to our eternal sin problem by sending His Son, who was both holy God and man, walked the dirt of Israel, went to a cross after living a perfect life, went to a cross, paid the penalty of your sin and my sin so that we could have fellowship with God forever and ever. No one else can do that. Christianity is not one religion among several because God Himself set the solution for the real problem is that we can't get to God. Not that we're not trying hard enough, Not that we're not exerting more effort into being religious, but that no matter what we do, we can't reach God. Can you climb to the moon? Good luck. It's not going to happen. It's easier to climb to the moon from Gulfport, Mississippi, than it is to get to God on our own. So God gave us a solution. The only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And my question to end is this. Do you know Him as Lord and as Savior and treasure this morning. Would you bow as we pray? Father God, we are so thankful for Job, for Elihu, for the things we've learned this morning. Most of all, God, we thank you for the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth to pay the penalty for our sin, to solve the problem of mankind as you define it, O Lord. And because of him, Because of His death on the cross, because of His resurrection from the dead, You have literally brought us to You that we might enter the throne of grace and and have fellowship and be with You here on earth and forever in heaven. God, we can only say thank You.
I pray that if there's one here today that does not receive the gift of eternal life through trusting Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would do it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.